You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 386 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last episode, we talked about how William Rosecrans' long-awaited campaign against the Confederates in Middle Tennessee had finally kicked off on June 24, 1863. Speed and surprise were essential to Rosecrans' campaign getting off to a good start, and at Hoover's Gap and Liberty Gap, the Federals checked both of those boxes on June 24th. At Liberty Gap, two brigades of Richard Johnson's division of McCook's 20th Corps roughly handled the pair of Arkansas regiments defending the entrance, and Johnson's troops occupied most of the gap that same day, completing the task by the morning of the 25th. Six miles to the east, at Hoover's Gap, Colonel John T. Wilder's Brigade of Indiana and Illinois Mounted Infantry, armed with Spencer repeating rifles, brushed aside a Confederate cavalry regiment to seize the entire gap by mid-afternoon. Wilder's men then beat back a counterattack by rebel infantry, inflicting sizable losses on their opponents. The ease and speed of these significant successes at the Gaps delighted Rosecrans. That evening at Hoover's Gap, as more Federalists arrived on the scene to hold Hot Wilder's hard-won prize in greater strength, 14th Corps Commander George Thomas congratulated Wilder, telling him, quote, You have saved the lives of a thousand men by your gallant conduct today. I didn't expect to get this gap for three days. All in all, things had gone remarkably well for William Rosecrans on the first day of his campaign. In fact, the only fly in the ointment for the Federals was the rain which began to fall steadily about midday. One thing Rosecrans' meticulous planning couldn't control was the weather. The rain that started on June 24th would continue to pour down the next day. Frustrated 21st Corps Commander Thomas Crittenden would complain that the rain came down, quote, incessantly for 15 days. In fact, there would be rain every day for the next 16 days, save two. The land up past the Highland Rim can't absorb much water, so creeks soon were quickly flooded. 
The roads turned into muddy streams, and the fields became ponds. A man in an Illinois regiment recorded in his diary, quote, About 9 o'clock a.m. we were relieved from picket duty, but not to better our condition, for we bivouacked in a wood on ground almost perfectly level and upon which the water stood about shoe-top deep. A soldier in another Illinois regiment wrote home that his outfit, quote, marched on a mud road with mud from one to six inches deep. An hour before dark halted until eight, then moved on again, marching over the worst roads I ever saw. On the other side of the lines, the days of rain made the Confederates just as miserable. An officer on Hardy's staff noted sourly that Tullahoma was surely of Greek origin. Quote, Tulla meant mud, and Homa meant more mud. So at this point, we just wanted to share a programming note, or not really a programming note, but a an editorial memo, um, because the Tullahoma campaign is really one of mostly maneuver. That means it's a lot of, they move there, and he marched his men to that place, and those guys fell back to here. And so since there's not much of a blow-by-blow account, so to speak, and since a lot of the moving here and there won't mean much to you unless you're following along on a map, what we're going to do is paint the rest of the campaign in pretty broad strokes so that hopefully you understand what's happening, but without us getting bogged down in random place names and whatnot. However, at the end of this episode, will still have given you a good idea of why the Tullahoma campaign was important. So hopefully that makes sense. And now let's get back to it. The Confederate response at Liberty Gap and Hoover's Gap was weak largely because the rebel cavalry failed to alert Bragg to the developing crisis. At the beginning of May, Bragg's mounted arm numbered more than 17,000 men in five divisions, divided into two corps, commanded by Major Generals Joseph Wheeler and Earl Van Dorn. However, by the end of June, that force had been reduced to 11,000 troopers in three divisions when Bragg was ordered to transfer one to Mississippi and allowed another under Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan to raid up into Kentucky, an order Morgan promptly exceeded by crossing into Ohio in a grandiose and ultimately futile effort to snatch an extra bit of glory for himself. Worse still, the capable Van Dorn was dead, having been shot by a jealous husband. His corps was reduced to the single division of newly promoted Nathan Bedford Forrest. Wheeler's two-division corps was stationed on Bragg's right, charged with watching for any federal move toward Manchester, while Forrest's men kept an eye on Bragg's left. 
Forrest was relatively new to the duties of regular cavalry. You see, his steady stream of successes thus far had come as a raider and leader of irregular cavalry. Thus, the federal feint toward Shelbyville, of which the action at Liberty Gap was a part, fooled Forrest, who reported the movement to Bragg as a major enemy effort. Far worse, though, was what happened with Wheeler. You see, on the morning of June 23rd, just one day before Rosecrans' campaign began, Wheeler started to transfer most of his cavalry from the Confederate right to the left, where, in conjunction with Forrest, he intended to strike northward, damaging the railroad above Nashville, down which virtually all the federal supplies flowed. That meant Bragg was blinded on his right as a result of Wheeler's ill-timed transfer of rebel cavalry, and the Confederate commander was oblivious to the enemy movement that began on the morning of the 24th and culminated in the seizure of Hoover's Gap. The Army of the Cumberland's advance had caught the Army of Tennessee flat-footed, and as a result, the initial Confederate response was generally uncoordinated and ineffective. Rosecrans wasn't about to give Bragg time to react if he could help it, so after spending the 25th consolidating his gains and shifting forces, the Federal commander issued orders for Thomas's breakout from Hoover's Gap to start on the morning of June 26th. As Thomas's 14th Corps moved out, aiming for Manchester, the quick capture of a stretch of rough terrain ahead called Matt's Hollow was critical, since if the Confederates could bottle up and delay the Federal advance at that spot, that setback might very well wreck Rosecrans' plans. Fortunately for the Yankees, though, Wilder's Lightning Brigade struck again, riding southeast from Hoover's Gap and securing Matt's Hollow by the afternoon of the 26th. By that time, two days after Rosecrans had started his campaign, Braxton Bragg had finally realized that the federal movement against the Confederate right through Hoover's Gap was the enemy's true line of advance. That afternoon, the afternoon of the 26th, Bragg met with Leonidas Polk at Shelbyville to discuss a response to the federal offensive. Always seeking a way to strike the enemy, Bragg proposed that Polk march north from Shelbyville, up through Guy's Gap, then turn east and strike the federal army in the rear. Troops from Claiborne's division of Hardee's Corps would support the movement with an assault from Liberty's Gap's south side. Bragg's plan shocked both Polk and Hardee. Polk's 14,000 infantry would essentially be pushing up into a void with no rebel cavalry to protect the flanks or provide information. Both Polk and Hardee protested, but Bragg overrode their objections and directed them to carry out the operation. However, later that day, when Bragg finally realized the full extent of the Confederate disaster at Hoover's Gap, he realized the impractical nature of his plan and changed his mind about launching, launching a counterstrike, and instead he ordered a retreat back to Tullahoma. 
If Braxton Bragg would have had time to pause and reflect, he may have realized that the bitter, toxic seeds of spring had now ripened in the Army of Tennessee's high command. With the enemy now on the move, the poisoned relationship between Bragg and his subordinates had already ruined any chance that the Confederates might display teamwork and coordination in meeting the threat. Communication and coordination failures played a role in the rebel reverses at Liberty Gap and Hoover's Gap and helped keep Bragg largely in the dark during the first crucial 48 hours of the federal movement. Perhaps most importantly, the dysfunction in the Army's high command had prevented any detailed contingency planning for defending against the inevitable opening of the enemy campaign. Bragg, Polk, and Hardee, like Rosecrans, had had months to prepare for this moment. The Confederate generals ought to have thoroughly discussed, planned, and decided on how to meet any potential move by the Federals. And with those plans in hand, the rebel forces would have immediately executed a coordinated response to the Yankee movements. But instead of functioning as a proper team, Bragg struggled on the fly to cobble together a major counterstrike, using the forces of a general he hated, all while he found himself caught in the midst of a fluid and rapidly changing situation. The decision on the afternoon of the 26th to abandon his plan for the counterstrike up through Guy's Gap by Polk's troops seemed to take the wind out of Braxton Bragg's sails. An hour after calling off the operation, Bragg asked Polk whether the army should try to hold where it stood, quote, or is a retreat to Tullahoma a necessity? That night, as the full extent of the disaster at Hoover's Gap finally became apparent, Bragg answered his own question and ordered his entire army to retreat to Tullahoma. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Early on Saturday, June 27th, the Army of Tennessee began the wet and slow slog back to Tullahoma. For Polk's troops, the distance from Shelbyville to Tullahoma was just short of 18 miles, while for Hardee's men, the distance from Wartrace to Tullahoma was a little more than 19 miles. In good weather, that was only a solid day's march. But by the morning of the 27th, when the rebels began their muddy trudge southward, the weather and the roads were anything but good. The next two days witnessed a slow-motion race between Bragg's Confederates tramping through the mud back to Tullahoma and Rosecrans Federals trudging their wet way toward Manchester. After a grueling, energy-sapping stop-and-go march through mud that topped out at six inches on the best roads, the Confederates finally reached the relative safety of Tullahoma on the afternoon of June 28. The only comfort the miserable rebels could take was that the Yankees were faring no better. William Rosecrans, along with the lead elements of both Crittenden's 21st Corps and Thomas's 14th Corps, did reach Manchester on the afternoon of the 27th, a full day earlier than most of the Confederates arrived in Tullahoma, which was just a dozen miles away to the southwest. However, although Rosecrans and the first Yankee soldiers managed to reach Manchester on the afternoon of the 27th, most of the wet, bedraggled troops of Crittenden's and Thomas's two corps were still miles behind. Thomas's 14th Corps at least had the advantage of using the macadamized pike from Hoover's Gap to Manchester, but a few miles south of the gap was Matt's Hollow, and that two-mile stretch of steep, rough terrain slowed the progress of Thomas's wagons to a crawl and so jammed the road that Rosecrans directed some of McCook's men to seek alternate routes. Remember that Crittenden's troops had been involved in Rosecrans' feint eastward toward Bradyville at the very start of the campaign, and now those men found themselves caught up in a nightmare on muddy, terrible roads. It took the soldiers of Brigadier General Thomas Wood's division an astounding 11 hours to cover just a few miles. Wood would report, quote, It has scarcely ever been my ill fortune in 18 years of active service to have to pass over so bad a road, end quote. In all, it would take Crittenden's 21st Corps four days to complete a march of just 21 miles. Besides seeing the first Yankees arrive in Manchester, June 27th also produced another bright spot for Rosecrans. On the rebel left, Confederate Cavalry General Joe Wheeler and his troopers still held the town of Shelbyville that afternoon, protecting the retreat of Polk soldiers, and also waiting for forest horsemen to arrive from Spring Hill, where they had been posted off to the west. However, Union cavalry charged into Shelbyville, overrunning Wheeler's lines and thundering through the town square, routing the rebels and snagging 400 prisoners. Spearheading the attack were the regiments of Colonel Robert H.G. Minty's brigade. Minty's brigade would soon catch Rosecrans' eye, and he would have other missions for it.
Throughout Sunday, June 28th, William Rosecrans waited for his various columns to straggle into Manchester. By the previous evening, Old Rosie knew Bragg had discovered his flank movement through Hoover's Gap to Manchester and was reacting by falling back to Tullahoma. Braxton Bragg's retreat to Tullahoma meant Rosecrans had to contemplate his next step. He had steered clear of a frontal assault before, preferring the flanking march to Manchester over a direct fight at Shelbyville. And Rosecrans was no more inclined to try such a frontal attack now against the fully manned rebel defensive works at Tullahoma. In fact, both sides needed a breather. Monday, June 29th, saw little marching on either side. The Confederates worked on improving their defenses at Tullahoma, while the Federals inched forward from Manchester, probing Bragg's lines. However, that cautious Federal advance from Manchester southwest toward Tullahoma was another deception. Turning to John Wilder and his newly christened Lightning Brigade, on June 28th, Rosecrans directed Wilder to strike directly south, cross the Elk River, then swing west, and if possible, destroy the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad Bridge that crossed the river at Allisonia, or at least damage the important depot a bit farther south down the railroad at Deckard. But the bridge was the Lightning Brigade's main target. If it could be destroyed, then Bragg's supply line would be cut. Wilder departed Manchester on the 28th, crossing the Elk and following the road south to Deckard, where he arrived that night while sending the 123rd Illinois off to destroy the bridge at Allisonia. However, as it turned out, the men of the 123rd found the Tullahoma Road crowded with rebels, which prevented the Illinoisans from reaching the railroad bridge. Meanwhile, the rest of Wilder's brigade did cause some damage at Deckard, but Wheeler's Confederate cavalry drove them off before they could cause too much mayhem. In any case, the Lightning Brigade successfully evaded pursuit and arrived back in Manchester on the 30th. Initially, after falling back to Tullahoma, Braxton Bragg had no intention of retreating another step. However, his two corps commanders, Polk and Hardy, were less enthusiastic about making a stand there. To Polk and Hardy, the unexpected strike on Deckard by Wilder's Lightning Brigade demonstrated that a larger Federal force might very well follow that same route to get in the Confederate rear. And, in fact, after consolidating his position at Manchester and replenishing his supplies, Rosecrans had in mind to do that very thing and cut the rail line behind Bragg. Whether because of the lack of enthusiasm of his chief lieutenants for making a stand at Tullahoma, or because he arrived at the same conclusion they had reached about the vulnerability of the railroad to his rear, Bragg, on June 30th, abruptly decided to once again retreat. His change of mind was so sudden and unexpected that it took Polk and Hardy by surprise. But by that night, the night of the 30th, a thoroughly demoralized rebel army was once again in full retreat. 
this time the Confederates wouldn't stop short of Chattanooga and the Tennessee River. The Federals pursued the rebels during the first few days of July, rounding up stragglers and collecting abandoned enemy equipment and supplies. While Tullahoma was not the decisive masterstroke that Rosecrans had envisioned, mostly because the Confederate Army had escaped to fight another day, it was nevertheless, thought old Rosie, still a masterpiece of brilliant strategy. After all, within the space of nine days, the Army of the Cumberland had driven the rebels completely from Middle Tennessee, all the way back to the gates of Chattanooga, at the cost of fewer than 600 casualties. The Confederates had lost at least 2,000 men, including 1,600 prisoners, while many more, perhaps as many as several thousand, simply deserted their regiments and went home. At Winchester, Tennessee, on the 4th of July, 20th Corps Commander Alexander McCook hosted a grand celebratory dinner party for Rosecrans. Over the next few days, there was more rejoicing in the Army of the Cumberland when news was shared about Lee's retreat from Gettysburg and Grant's capture of Vicksburg. However, William Rosecrans was soon stunned to learn that the authorities in Washington didn't share his view of his army's success. On July 7th, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton seemed to dismiss any achievement when he wired, quote, we have just received official information that Vicksburg surrendered. Lee's army overthrown. Grant victorious. You and your noble army now have the chance to give the finishing blow to the rebellion. Will you neglect the chance? Rosecrans angrily replied, quote, You do not appear to observe the fact that this noble army has driven the rebels from Middle Tennessee. I beg on behalf of this army that the War Department may not overlook so great an event because it is not written in blood. To Rosecrans, the Tullahoma campaign had been a masterpiece of planning and execution, marred only by the rains that plagued the operation. But despite the adverse conditions, his army had still outflanked and outmaneuvered their rebel opponents, forcing Bragg into a demoralizing retreat all the way back to Chattanooga. But old Rosie wouldn't get the praise from Washington he felt he deserved. By this stage of the war, Lincoln and Stanton and Halleck understood that the Confederacy lived and died with its armies, and only the destruction of the enemy armies would bring about the collapse of the rebellion. To Washington's eyes, the survival of Bragg's Army of Tennessee only postponed that fight to another day. William Rosecrans and his superiors in Washington became still more displeased with each other during the six weeks that followed the end of the Tullahoma campaign, as old Rosie seemed to revert back to the mode he had been in for preceding six months, that is, resting, organizing, equipping, and stockpiling supplies, but neither fighting nor advancing. Once again, telegrams to Rosecrans from Halleck and Stanton urged action, 
and asked pointedly how long it would be before his army moved to follow up its impressive but incomplete success in the Tullahoma campaign. The complaints from Washington would only stop when, on August 16, 1863, Rosecrans began another advance, this one designed to force Bragg out of Chattanooga. That maneuvering would result in September in the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of Tennessee facing each other again, this time along a winding stream in the northwest corner of Georgia called Chickamauga Creek. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually another magazine recommendation. The lead article of Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 10, Issue Number 1, is titled The Deception of Braxton Bragg, The Tullahoma Campaign. And we'll also throw in a bonus recommendation. Since the May 2013 issue of America's Civil War Magazine has a short article titled Tullahoma Gets No Respect, accompanied by an excellent set of maps. And it's really because of those maps that we're recommending it. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book and magazine recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up the show, we want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Steve S., David G., Herman S., Christopher H., and Nick S. And thanks to James D. and Stephen G. for their recent donations. Thanks, guys. You know, pretty much 100% of donations still go to books. It's kind of amazing that almost 10 years into this thing, we're still buying books. But, well, there's a lot of Civil War books. Anyway, thanks. Those donations are always appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.